Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Foltz. With me, as always, my co-host and partner in crime, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? I'm doing good tonight, Foltz. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm excited uh, to get into it, as always. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to be doing uh, covering a lot of urban legends tonight. So they're always fun to talk about because it, it always makes me think of uh, you know times when I was a kid. And you'd hear all different kinds of legends and tales that would basically, you know, scare the heck out of you. Yeah, people talk. You're around a campfire or you're out sitting out back. And it always would start kind of like a friend of mine knew a guy. Right. It was never like definitively (laughs) the person you were talking to. Yeah, you could never trace or track down that person or trace it back to the actual. But... um, yeah, there were so many. Do you have any that stick out in your head that you recall from a kid or even present day that is like your go-to urban legend? Uh, my go-to? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple. I, my my go-to is probably this one, and and it's weird because it's my go-to, and yet I've never gone to it. Um, it's called the Blue-Eyed Six, and it happened like uh, relatively close to us, like right out past where my parents live. I guess there was uh, a murder. There was like a bunch, like six guys. They all had blue eyes. They there was like a murder, like a mass murder or something, and they all were executed. Right. And I guess they just their their souls haunted this. Uh, I think it was a church out there. So for anybody that's not not aware where Steve's parents live, uh, like the central Pennsylvania area, yeah, like Lebanon County line, Grantville area right it just i mean if you check out blue-eyed six there's there's a lot to it but uh that's kind of the biggest one i remember just being around the park and like talking and how about how about you man well mine was i always remember because it was it always scared me really bad i always remember hearing this one of uh if you're riding a, uh, riding around in a car and you see a car in another lane or coming towards you and they don't have their headlights on, that if you flashed your headlights at them to get their attention, that it really turned out to be like some type of like gang initiation and then they were going to follow you and as a part of the initiation to get in the gang, they had to kill everybody in the car. So, I mean... That's terrifying. I mean, there were times I think that... Uh, you know, I saw a couple of headlights, and I was just like, ah, I'm going the other way. So, <laughs> did, you, did you stop flashing people then? <laughs> yeah. I mean, until, like, you know, you get your driver's license at 16, and, you know, you start to wise up, and they be like, all right, there's no gangs out here. Because that's, like, everybody's everybody's thing. Like, you see somebody without their headlights on, man, you're flashing them. Oh, yeah. What are you doing? The guy behind you's flashing them. Yeah, because you're worried that they're going to kill someone. But, you know, in 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 that urban legend, you're worried that they're going to come kill you. Right. You don't even think about it. You flash them, and then you're like, oh. Mm-hmm. Then you're flooring it right, to get away from the gang initiation, right? So that's a good one, folks. I like that one. Yeah, it's like so. It was always kind of, always kind of terrifying, and 
again, that was a whoever told it to me. They knew somebody, <laughs> right? You know, they did it. So, but um, so we're gonna get into like a, a nice list here tonight of um, you know some of maybe the creepiest urban legends, um, and uh, we'll see uh, we'll see how many states we can go through. We'll try. We'll, probably the best thing we could do is probably go through them like in alphabetical order, and uh, you know, I like that. Yeah, we'll see Good how way they to go. do the list. Yeah, we'll see how they go. So, um, you know, uh, the creepiest urban legends, and we'll we'll just take them uh, state by state and see how they go. They've whispered around campfires and passed down from generation to generation. They spark fear in the hearts and minds of children and adults alike. Their subject take many shapes, be they bloodthirsty creatures of the night, vengeance-seeking souls, or sinister vortices. Each time they are told, the terror spreads. America is a country rich in folklore, a place where cautionary tales have always been mixed into the pot and sprinkled into our collective nightmares. Yet some of our nation's eeriest and most persistent stories, whether because they are rooted in community lore or used as a means to synthesize local tragedy, don't travel far, never fear, or actually please do fear, we've tracked down the creepiest urban legends in all 50 states. And the macabre bunch of stories and certain to freak you out no matter where you live. Steve, kick us off. All right, we're going to start down south in Alabama. Yep. The Dead Children's Playground. This eerie playground, adjacent to Maple Hill, Huntsville's oldest cemetery, doesn't just have an eerie nickname for fun. The playground was presumably designed to entertain kids while their parents visited the graves of loved ones. Legend has it, though, that the spirit of children who have been buried in the, c- the cemetery since the first grave was dug there in 1822 come out to play at night. The living have observed orbs of light going down the slides, seen swings moving on their own, even heard giggling. Creepier still, some say the spirits include victims of a rash of child murders that happened in the 1960s when bodies were rumored to have been found in that area that now houses the playground. The playground itself wasn't opened until 1985, so you can imagine how much pent-up energy these tiny spirits had after 163 years without a sliding board. In 2007, the city tried to raise the park to make more room for graves and remove the slides and swings overnight. After public outcry, it was replaced with more modern equipment, making it slightly less creepy to look at and also probably resulting in some happier ghosts. That's a good one. You, you know that uh, that playground that's up by Centennial Acres? Yeah. That's exactly what that playground reminds me of. Whenever anybody, and I'm sure we're going to lose everybody because nobody knows what we're talking about, but long story short, whenever I hear a playground story, it makes me think of a playground near our house. <laughs> but um, So anyways, let's take a little trip to uh, Alaska and the Alaska Triangle. Encompassing an area ranging near Juneau in the southeast to the northern borough region to the western metropolis of Anchorage, Alaska, answer to the Bermuda Triangles compromised some of the most barren wilderness in the U.S. and it apparently craved souls. More than 20,000 people have gone missing without a trace in the area during the past half century alone. 
Are they being consumed by mythological beings like the beastly Keelut or the ghoulish kidnapper Qualapalak, lost on extreme hikes, or simply vanishing into a dark vortex? Nobody knows, though it's not for lack of trying. When the government lost House Majority Leader Hal Boggs, Cessna to the Triangle in 1972, a massive search turned up tons of theorists, but no bodies. The area had been associated with evil spirits. The tinglet lore for centuries attributed trickster demons for luring people into an icy death. Others believe areas exist amid electromagnetically influenced vile vortex. Still others think it's a Darwinian result of explorers taking on nature. Regardless, the area continues to claim people, and underneath the massive blanket of snow and rock likely lies one of the largest and best-preserved mass graves in the world. Mm, bro, scary. I loved your pronunciation on the ghoulish kidnapper Qualapalak. Oh, that you. was great. Oh. And also, I think the word vile vortex is pretty sinister. That would be a great name for a band. Oh, yeah. Vile Vortex. We got to write that one down. Be like a heavy jam band. <laughs> All right, on to Arizona. You know this one, folks, the Skinwalkers. Oh, we, we know it all too well. We did a full podcast on it. Check it out if you want to get into more of Skinwalkers. Definitely. It's easy to feel uneasy while driving through the desolate desert roads of Arizona, especially at night, and particularly so when you hear a short burst of taps on your window while cruising at 60 miles per hour, then turn to see the shape-shifting, mutilated half-human creature responsible for the high-speed interruption. Relax. It's only trying to (laughs) rip the flesh off your bones. This legend is so ingrained in Arizona culture. When Navajo woman was found brutally murdered in Flagstaff, the accused killer's defense in court was that the attack could have only been perpetrated by a skinwalker. There's even a defined and well-documented portion of the state known as Skinwalker Ranch, where you're most likely to see one of these creatures, not that you'd actually want to. Skinwalkers, like so many ancient American urban legends, have roots in Native American folklore. While it's fairly hard to gather specific details, as speaking of potentially sinister legends is seriously taboo in Navajo culture. It is understood that what non-Navajos refer to as skinwalkers are witch doctors who have become an evil reflection of everything the Navajo nation values. Basically, they are men who've transformed into malevolent, malevolent, murderous creatures that have no qualms using their spiritual powers to kill. Navajo medicine men are trained to learn both good and evil aspects of their power, and skinwalkers are those who have turned to the dark side. It's all very Star Wars, and frankly, it's still terrifying. It is, because when I think back uh, to the research that we were doing on skinwalkers, where I don't recall the guy's name, but they they saw like that vortex open up, and it was like 10 feet off the ground. Yes. And, like something crawled out and ran off into the distance, and that vortex shut. So whatever's going on at Skinwalker Ranch is obviously, <clears throat> I have no doubt that it has something to do with... Um, um, 
ancient Navajo or you know or um, Native American, um, probably rightfully so. Um, probably some type of wolf too. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, the the wolf on there, the dire wolf that yeah. was shot at with a thirty odd six. A couple the, times. Yeah, a few, and only just a patch of hair came off. So if you want to hear more about that, uh, go check that out. And uh, who knows, me and Steve may uh, end up at Skinwalker Ranch one of these days. If we're touring, yeah. If we're out there in Arizona, yeah, yeah. I, would, I would go there. Heck yeah! So who knows? We uh, we may end up hitting the road here one of these days and going to hit some of these hot spots. Let's see. So where are we going? Arkansas, the Dog Boy. The name sounds kind of goofy, or actually even kind of like goofy. But if you find yourself at 65 Mulberry Street in the middle of minuscule Arkansas town of Quitman, you won't laugh if you see the hulking outline of a 300-pound half-man, half-beast, complete with glowing animal eyes, glaring out the windows. Walk quickly, as he has been known to chase people down his street, biting at their heels, kind of like a dog, actually. This is actually the rare urban legend where the story behind the story ends up being even creepier than the folklore. Now, Gerald Bettis, the only son of the Bettis family of 65 Mulberry, was always a problem child, but not in the cute Junior Healy way. Bettis would collect and torture torture animals, hence the dog boy moniker. Now, before turning his sociopathic focus to his elderly parents, allegedly imprisoning them in their own home, and potentially even murdering his father, eventually Bettis would be in prison for growing marijuana on his back porch and would die in the state penitentiary in 1988 of a drug overdose. Ooh, dog boy. Heck of an end. Yeah. Makes me think of like a dog face boy. Yes, yes, it does in some way make me think of that too. Let's keep it going, folks. Let's go to California. What's up? The many horrors of Turnbull Canyon. Located near LA between Whittier and City of Industry, Turnbull is a 49,000 acre smorgasbord of nightmare fuel set amid the scenic hills. You want your scares rooted in American history? The natives called it Hutungna, or the place of the devil, where the ghosts of those slain for not converting to Christianity dwell alongside witches and Satanists who reportedly use the place to sacrifice children, whose spirits now walk the canyon and dangle from the trees. They're joined by the ghosts of 21 kids who perished in a plane crash back in 1952, allegedly, as there is no existing record of it. Then there's the remains of the old insane asylum that came back to life to kill a teen in the 1960s via a long dormant electrical wire. There are cults, alien encounters, gravity hills. It goes on and on. Basically, if there's something that gets under your skin, there's a story about it happening in this seemingly cursed canyon. The place's evil vibes date back centuries, though it wasn't until the site was established as a fur trapping site in 1845 that things started getting really intense. The word of the site's terrors, traveling far and wide and making it a place visited as much for its beauty as its morbid curiosity. The horrors of Turnbull Canyon. Add that one to the list, I think. And we got to get down there. <laughs> I know. It's getting crazy. I'm loving it. All right, let's get out to Colorado, where uh, 
I guess if the guy from the, the one back, if, if he'd have been living there, maybe he wouldn't have been in prison. <laughs> Riverdale Road. For 11 horrifying miles, Riverdale Road near Thornton, Colorado is crammed with enough horrifying legends to bring even the bravest paranormal investigator to his knees. From a ghostly runner attacking parked cars on Joggers Hill to various demons and even a phantom Camaro revving up down the winding road. But the gates of hell seems the epicenter. The physical iron gates are now gone, but what remains in the partial shell of an old mansion where a madman supposedly burned his wife and children alive? Left behind are the barren, charred plot of land and the white-clad woman who wanders the area. She's joined by the ghost of the slave supposedly hanged from the now-charred tree. Go ahead and run away when you see something creepy like the ethereal pack of dogs. You'll probably just going to bump into something worse possibly hell or portal to which some believe is here that maybe explains why so many demons were conjured in a weird underground chicken coop near a set of underground tunnels it's unknown when things got really hairy though given the spirits of ghost slaves it's safe to assume terrible things have been happening in riverdale road since the 1850s and each time something terrible happened over the decades it's just kind of got stacked onto this nestling doll of horror show so when somebody says go to hell, you can say, are you talking about Riverdale Road? Riverdale Road in Thornton, Colorado? I've been there. It's 11 miles long. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> watch out for the vortex. You might hit a portal and go to hell. That's crazy, dude. That is. I'm sure there's a bunch of people that have gone out there seeking that portal. Yeah. I mean, even just that, or people that have experienced it there. I'm sorry that if uh, you're listening to our podcast and you think we're making light of it. We're definitely not. It's just kind of what we do when we're scared of something. So Right. So no disrespect, and we'll definitely come check it out with you. Hit us up. Taking it from Colorado across the country to Connecticut. I've been to Connecticut. It's gorgeous. I think we drove someone to an airport once in Connecticut. Nice. Dudley Town, often cited as a dark vortex. Rumor has it that any visitor that steals an artifact from Dudley Town will have a curse put on them and their family. Dudley Town Forest visitors report seeing just about every kind of paranormal paranormal phenomenon you could think of. People describe an unnerving lack of wildlife in the area, as well as floating orbs of light and sinister, wolf-like black shadows, murmurs, and disembodied voices, as well as feeling of general dread. Add on the fact that there is a mysterious group called the Dark Forest Association that polices the grounds with militant force, and you've got yourself a serious case of what the hell's really going on out here. The curse of the ill-fated Dudleys began back in jolly old England, where Edmund Dudley was beheaded for conspiring against King Henry Seventh. This treacherous act apparently unleashed a curse on the rest of the Dudley clan which immigrated from Gulliford, England, to Cornwall, Connecticut in 1748. They helped establish a community centered around the town, the town's then thriving iron industry, before a series of untimely disasters befell the family. These calamities included a series of mysterious deaths, which, in turn, inspired madness and suicide among the Dudleys, several of whom disappeared into the woods never to be seen again. 
the remaining residents very sensibly ditched to the town, which has been abandoned ever since. That's that's really that's freaky. An entire town, Foltz. I know you love that. I do love that. And An I, abandoned town. I always look into like abandoned places, and uh, we have a place here close to us that we'll have to check out sometime. I'm not going to say it on the podcast, but right, we're going to check it out for sure. Definitely. But in the meantime, we're going to take a little trip to Delaware for Mr. Chu. Samuel Chu was a respected man, a chief justice in the state back in the colonial days. Still, even in colonial America, bullies latched on to his name, constantly proclaiming, ah, Chu, as if sneezing. He apparently hated it so much that his, par- his spirit still stalks those who mock him, showing up in his robe and powdered wig to scare the ever-loving crap out of people who can't resist the easy joke at the expense of the century's dead legislator. Chu was very much a real man, serving as the chief justice of three lower counties until he died in 1743. Things got so unsettling that people eventually held a funeral for the ghost in Dover's Green, laying his spirit to rest in an ornate grave. He seemed to be placated, though he's still known to mess with... uh, the kids who sneeze at the mention of his name. Uh, Chew. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't like that. No, he hated it. That was his thing. He heard somebody say that. He thought it was, he's a chief justice. That was disrespectful. Yeah. I wonder if it was more that it was just like, he hated it or it was just like, oh, yeah, okay. I heard that one so many times. You don't got anything more original. Oh, I mean, your name is Chew. This is true. From Delaware down to Florida, one of my favorites, and th- we've covered this one in a in a in a past podcast as well. The Cryptids, I believe it was. Yes, this one. I'll just get right into it. The Everglades are filled with an array of terrifying creatures: man-eating alligators, man-eating snakes, man-eating roadkill, whatever. However, one human-like figure has been spotted enough times to warrant elevated levels of concern, and this is the skunk ape. A relative of Bigfoot, a fully grown skunk ape stands anywhere from 5'7 tall and weighs approximately 450 pounds. They can be detected by a horrific odor that's been described as sun-baked animal carcass and rotting garbage. They mostly eat berries and small animals, but from time to time, they've been known to ravage farms and tear wild boars to shreds. Recently, a skunk ape HQ has popped up in the Everglades where you can book tours out into the swamp or reserve a spot on a hunting expedition to finally prove the hairy beast is real once and for all. No one can say for sure. But because its lineage can be traced back to Bigfoot, many believe it migrated south from the mountains and found refuge in the swamplands, an environment safe from humans with ample sustenance and room to roam. Others believe it's just lore, a tale pioneered pioneers created in order to scare people off of their land and preserve the wilderness. Whatever you believe, should you find yourself camping in the Everglades and you smell something foul, take caution. It could be a skunk ape. That's crazy. First of all, I think probably the scariest part of it all would be 
camping in the Everglades. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there'd be crocs everywhere. And let me tell you something, whether that place that's offering hunts, I've been, I've gone on enough hunts where it's basically just taking my gun or bow for a walk and I haven't gotten a deer. And that's in Pennsylvania where, yeah, maybe it was a little cool. I am not going to go hunting in Florida for the skunk ape. <laughs> I mean, you're going to come. That's exactly what you're going to get skunked on that hunt, probably. Or hurt from some animal. Yeah, I mean, don't don't go camping in the Everglades. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if you take anything away from the skunk ape, that's the lesson. Fultz's public service announcement for the <laughs> Yeah. All right. We're going to go to Florida's neighbor, Georgia, in the curse of Lake Lanier. The massive man-made lake north of Atlanta is unnerving on multiple fronts, with a reputation for tragic and sometimes mysterious deaths from a disproportionately high frequency of boating accidents and drownings to unexplained homicides. A construction crew discovered the skeleton of a woman who disappeared in 1958, still trapped in her car at the bottom of a lake more than 30 years later. And since then, people have reported sightings of ghostly female figure on the lake's water. There are even reports of a malevolent catfish lurking on the bottom. That's large enough to swallow a dog or even drown a diver. There were numerous issues with the construction of the lake, not the least of which included the displacement of families, businesses, and even cemeteries occupying the land an Army Corps and engineers sought to develop. The vestiges of some of these structures still have ghostly presence at the bottom of the lake, which some point to as a source of Lanier's haunted reputation. Others point to the simple water plus alcohol equals accidents formula to explain the tragedies. Lanier is a notorious party lake, but as noted above, many of the deaths go on go beyond simple boating accidents, leading to some believe that there's something more sinister at work. Dude. You know that that kind of reminds me of, um, I know you've watched it. Uh, I'm not sure if our listeners did, are uh, watching uh, the Ozarks. Oh, yeah. But that's kind of like I send you that picture. It's coming back out in three weeks. Yeah, and I can't wait. But that kind of will remind me of like the flooding of the land, you know, to get the, yep, the water. That was, that's the exact story. This one's got the uh, the sinister thing at the bottom, though. That The first one is the malevolent catfish lurking on the bottom. And I've seen some people pull some huge fish out of really like dock areas where you would put a boat. And to say that it's big enough to eat or swallow a dog, I mean, there's tons of catfish out there big enough to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's called noodling. They just reach their hand in holes, and when they feel something bite down, they grab a hold and pull the catfish out. Yeah, and there's even ones, I mean, way bigger than a human, like 250, 300-pound catfish that are just immense so I could definitely see even a a, a a diver. If a diver was down there and it got to hold you in a different way, you could drown down there. Right. Lake Lanier. So, That's a cool one. All right. So you're going to take us to uh, to Hawaii. I will take it if you don't want to. No, no, please do. All uh, right. Here we go. Because uh, as you know, if, if, if you've been following our podcast, uh, there's a lot of crazy things that can go on in Hawaii. I told a story on a few podcasts back about a experience I had in Hawaii, which I'm Sure can probably compare to the night marchers. Go for it. Picture yourself on a scenic Hawaiian beach at night. Imagine a full moon and a cool breeze running across the sand. Dreamy. 
But if you hear the faint sounds of drums pounding at a distance or see a barrage of torches out on the horizon, it could be your worst nightmare. These spirits of ancient Hawaiian warriors, dedicated to protecting the islands from all outside threats, will only spare your life if you, reportedly, lay down, pee on yourself in submission, or if, miraculously, you share a bloodline with one of the warriors. Good luck peeing on yourself, tourist. The first alleged encounter with the night marchers, known as Hawaka Lapu in Hawaiian, was recorded when Captain Cook arrived on Hawaiian shores in 1778. In Hawaiian tradition, the night marchers' role in life was to protect sacred members of the community. In modern times, their spirits have been reported all throughout the islands, mainly at the sites of sacrificial temples and other sacred grounds. Oh, and the decidedly corporate Davies Pacific Center building in downtown Honolulu. Apparently, they still protect the island from outsiders, and if you buy into the legend, they always will. I like it. It's definitely cool protecting the island. Oh, yeah. I mean... Hawaii is just another example. I mean, the Native Hawaiians are basically just uh, mainland uh, U.S. Native Americans. I mean, the same thing happened to them. I mean, I had the amazing privilege of living in Hawaii uh, on Oahu uh, with my wife and two boys at the time. It's a wonderful place. It's awesome. Highly recommend if you get the chance, do it or visit there. Um, But... uh, yeah, there's definitely some magic over in Hawaii, um, like no other place that I've ever been. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, and I definitely wouldn't taunt the night marchers. Um, they even tell tourists that go over and visit the Big Island to uh, to not take lava rock home with them because, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, it's it's bad luck. And the post office over there say it's the one thing that comes most often back from the mainland is people returning these lava rocks just because their lives have gone to shambles ever since they've gotten back from Hawaii and they can only like attest it to this uh, rock, you know? I do know. When I uh, toured San Francisco out on Alcatraz Island, I actually brought up the question to the, uh, the tour guide. I said, so this is called the rock. Can we just take a rock from the rock? And they said, no, that would be uh, against the rules. It would be like defacing a public land or something. Yeah. So it was against the rules to do that. But it is amazing because uh, I remember when I was over, I went to visit Alcatraz and they take you out to the yard. And they're like, if you're looking around to this day, you still might find like shanks or there's probably buried shanks out there in the yard. Jeez. Pretty neat. Very good. Very neat. All right, let's take a trip to Idaho to the Phantom Jogger of Canyon Hill. Now, there are rumors of many hauntings in Caldwell, Idaho's centuries-old Canyon Hill Cemetery, but the one that gets the most attention is the Midnight Jogger. As with many of the best urban legends, you have to do your part to get her attention. In this case, it involves parking between certain trees in the cemetery at night. Do it right and the legless apparition will knock on your window to let you know she's there. Then continue on her route. It's creepy, though now it's 
only the second worst image conjured when you think of sinister joggers. The origins are unknown, though considering there's another conspiratorial legend that the entire state of Idaho doesn't actually exist, perhaps the jogger is just a creation of a deranged and deceptive government. That would be scary, and it wouldn't be something that I would be like, I went out there, guys, it worked. I would probably, uh, probably need to spend a few days by myself after doing that. You know, when you were saying that, I had this image in my mind, and I think that the Phantom Jogger is portrayed on Ghostbusters. I think it's like in uh, in Central Park or something. Could be. I think there's a jogger coming through there because I just I can I have an image of it, um, like a residual memory of it. So it must have been like a movie that I saw. Most likely Ghostbusters. Yeah, but I can definitely remember the a legend of a Phantom Jogger. That's pretty cool. I like it. Out to Illinois, the Italian bride, an elaborate marble statue of a woman in a wedding dress is bound to stand out in a cemetery as it is, but that's not what's driven the Italian bride to be a subject of local fascination. Upon closer inspection, there is an actual photo plaque on the gravesite of a woman in a casket looking perfectly preserved, even though as an inscription notes, the photo was taken six years after burial when the body was exhumed. Reports of unusual activity cover everything from the smell of fresh flowers near the gravesite in the dead of winter to the ghostly figure of a woman in white and a woman in white roaming the century, the cemetery <laughs> or the halls of nearby Proviso High School. In the dead of night. In 1921, recently married Julia Bacola Petta died in childbirth and was buried in her wedding dress. That's terrible. That is. Legend has it, her mother immediately began experiencing nightmares that Julia was demanding her grave be reopened. The source of the distress varies depending on the storyteller, often relating to some sort of disconnect with Julia's new husband, but it was, what it isn't in dispute is that six years later, the mother got her wish and Julia's pristine condition inspired her to raise funds for the statue that's been creeping out generations ever since. Interesting. Is this, this mom, what, the mom dug up the yeah oh, that's weird it, it really is um you know out of all that the one thing that i just kept thinking about was uh that she was buried in her wedding dress yeah because i used to have like this thought that whatever you get buried in that's what you're gonna spend like in the afterlife like i can remember like early on and me and my wife's marriage i'd always say you know yeah unlikely event something happens to me make sure that you bury me like in a in sweatpants <laughs> i thought and, you were gonna say a suit no no oh gosh no i don't want to be in a suit for uh, sweatpants and like uh you know a, a hanes tagless from a six-pack i'm good to go there you go so <laughs> i digress uh we're gonna go to indiana to diana of the dunes along the shores of lake michigan fishermen vacationers and other passerbys have reported sightings of diana a ghostly nude female apparition floating along the shoreline and eventually disappearing into the water without a trace. 
Fishermen first started reporting the sightings of a, of a woman skinny dipping in the waters of Indiana's Lake Michigan coastline in 1916. And that's because Alice Gray, the source of the Diana legend, was still very much alive at that point. The exact circumstances that caused her to live a reclusive life in a lakeside shack aren't entirely clear, but the years that followed saw her marry a man who later became a murder suspect and then die an early death, allegedly from uremic poisoning. Her ghostly presence has been a subject of local lore ever since. There you go. Shores of Lake Michigan. Yeah. Back Back up one here. The Italian Bride... Yeah. That image of uh, uh, Beetlejuice when they do the resurrection. Yeah. And that that the girl is in her bride, dre- yeah. her bridal dress. Yeah. That's all I was thinking about that whole time. I was like, man, you know, they, they do the seance and they bring up the the uh, the couple that owned the house when they died and they, they put them in their their wedding clothes. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, dude, that's... That I believe cool. they're rebooting it or making a sequel. Oh, really? Yeah, it's one of the two. I know it's definitely coming back. We'll have to check it out. I hope Michael Keaton plays Beetlejuice again. We need one of those guys to be like, hey... Yeah, yeah, Look this up. Hey, Jimmy. Yeah. So if anybody, anybody in the local Pennsylvania area looking for a job with Subtle Beast to be the looker-upper... And your name's Jimmy. Yeah, you have to be named Jimmy, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Not to discriminate, but uh, I got to go to Iowa and talk about the Villa Sica Axe Murder House. Um, what part of Axe Murder House don't you understand? So the murders themselves are not very much an urban legend. They happen, and they remain unsolved. Sometime between the evening of June 9, 1912, and the morning that followed, six members of the Moore family and two houseguests were brutally murdered, with each victim having suffered an axe wound to the head. One suspect was tried twice and never convicted. Surprising no one. The somehow still-standing house is the subject of numerous rumors, legends, and reports of paranormal activity. You can find out for yourself because you can actually stay there, just like the ghost hunter who mysteriously stabbed himself in the chest there in 2014. Oh. What? You know what we need to do? We're going to add this to the list. Valeska? Yep. And, uh, you know, Evan Jones, if you're listening, we're going to stop out and we're going to visit you in Iowa. And I'm probably not going to stay at the, the axe murder house, but uh, I'll pick you up in the morning. Oh, so I'm staying there by myself now. I- I mean, the guy in 2014 stabbed himself in the chest. Okay, so what we're also going to need, along with the guy named Jimmy, is for filming purposes, we're going to need a stand-in for Steve, just from the back. (laughs) Just from the back. (laughs) Go ahead. All right, out in Kansas, Stull's Gateway to Hell. The tiny town of Stull has counted very few residents since it was founded in 1856. The most famous is rumored to be Lucifer himself. Some say appears at the town cemetery on Halloween in the spring equinox. They say he uses the site where a roofless church once stood as a portal to and from hell. Some say that he's drawn to the site of frequent witch hangings. Others believe one of the graves actually contains Satan's own child. Either way, new graves continue to be dug, despite signs warning against trespassers. 
perhaps referring directly to the Prince of Darkness himself or the cults that are rumored to flock to the grounds. The first published article about the horrors are traced back to 1974. The University Daily Kansan, though whispers about evil have persisted since 1900 or so. In 1998, the hanging tree was torn down to stop people from visiting. It hasn't lessened the need for a small town to bolster an annual police presence to deter visitors looking for a glimpse of the devil himself. In Kansas. Yeah. I mean, that's down, you know, in, in the Bible Belt. I mean, I can't believe people actually want to go looking for the devil. Hey, I think we know where the devil is. Let's go. I, I mean, I thought the devil was in Georgia. That's true. You know? Could be down in Georgia. Okay. So that was uh, the gate. So we're going to Kentucky now to uh, the witch girl of Pilot's Knob. Just looking at the pictures of a young Mary Evelyn Ford's grave feels a bit unnerving. With a series of interlocking white crosses forming a fence around a pit of gravel, and the bar is appearing unnaturally bent in some places. Then you hear the alleged backstory. A mother and daughter both accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake in 1916. With the mother's charred remains being carried to a far-off location, while the daughter was buried in a steel-lined coffin covered in stone and encased in crosses to prevent her escape. Some have claimed to witness tiny footprints appearing in the gravel, or even a young ghostly figure trying to escape the grave sites. Kid ghosts, as we know, are the creepiest ghosts. They are. Oh, they totally are. Now, while stories about the gravesite go back decades and naturally increased in detail with the growth of the Internet, there's not much evidence that anyone was burned at the stake for witchcraft in the area in 1916. Even back then, that was generally big news. Marilyn Evelyn Ford really did die a tragic young death. But the stated cause of death is peritontis, an inflammation of the stomach lining. It's amazing what a truly unnerving gravesite can do for the imagination. We still wouldn't want to to be near it at night. Certainly wouldn't. Terrifying. Terrifying. That and also the fact that there is uh, inflammation of the stomach lining. That sounds (laughs) terrifying, too. Yeah, nobody wants that. I mean, today it's probably a simple shot. Right, probably some liquid medicine. You go down there, get some antibiotics. Yeah. No no reason to haunt someone for 100 years. No. Now, this next one that you're going to be doing, this goes up there with Hawaii. There's a lot of magic down here in this state, too. Oh, yeah, man. Louisiana, I've been down there. You're going to be going back down there, too, at some point. The Vampire Comte de Saint-Germain. As far as spooky stuff goes... Louisiana does not rely solely on voodoo and hoodoo, ghosts and Woody Harrelson's accent from True Detective. Like any debonair bloodsucker, male vampire worth his garlic, Jacques Saint-Germain's hobby is seducing attractive young females in New Orleans, only to promptly drink their blood. By some accounts, he was born in the early 1700s. In others, he's been alive since Christ. After dying in 1783, he was spotted all over Europe before reappearing to terrorize New Orleans in 1902. He's still still on his blood-drinking binge in the French Quarter today, though now he just goes by Jack. Nice rebrand. Comte de Saint-Germain was certainly a real person alchemist, an all-around high-society snob who befriended a laundry list of famous 18th-century luminaires. 
He ran with crews including King Louis the Fifteenth, Catherine the Great, and the philosopher Voltaire, who said he was a man who never dies and who knows everything. He has been tied to several local murders, and in the seven, in the 1970s, French pseudo celeb named Richard Chonfrey publicly claimed to be the infamous Saint Germain, but then he died of a drug overdose in 1983. Or did he? Perhaps we'll never know. Yeah. And I like that um, where they're talking about vampires and then they're talking about the, the philosopher, the Voltaire. Because wasn't the Voltaire uh, like the head table in those vampire like... Um, totally was, yep. I forget what they were called, but... Ask my wife, man. Yeah. She th- loves those. My wife does too. Whenever they're on TV, it's the equivalent of like if Braveheart's on for me. <laughs> right. You know the next three hours is going down the tubes. Absolutely is. Now, in Maine, there's a legend of the Wood Island Light. Now, instead of providing useful light to help ships navigate, the lighthouse on Wood Island reportedly provides a space for strange moans, unexplained shadows, and other indicators of paranormal activity, commonly attributed to a murder-suicide that took place decades ago. Howard Hobbs, a local fisherman and drifter, really did murder his landlord, Fred Milken on the Wood Island in 1896. Hobbs had been drinking, and after shooting Milken, left the scene and turned his rifle on himself. You can read about the events of that day in all of their 19th century newspaper glory. From ghost experts who weigh in on such things, Hobbs is generally considered the likeliest candidate to still be haunting the lighthouse. Ooh. Very cool. Very cool. It was Twilight. Twilight, there you go. Twilight, the Twilight Saga. So this next one's from Maryland, which is uh, a near and dear to my heart. We, we've always had a second house in Maryland, so it's kind of like my second home. The Goat Man. Although I've never really heard of the Goat Man before. It's probably the best thing. Maryland's infamous Goat Man allegedly does all the things you would expect a deranged half-goat, half-man to do. Kills teenagers. He eats dogs. Screams like a goat, etc. But the most terrifying aspect is just how deep the lore goes. The USDA was even forced at one point to publicly deny accidentally creating the beast in their Beltsville Agricultural Research Center. Another tale revolves around a goat farmer who, after realizing a group of rowdy teens had killed his tribe, went totally crazy and turned into a teen-slaying goat monster. Though the lore has been around for a while, the first recorded media mentions of the Goatman occurred in 1971, courtesy of writer Karen Hostler of the Prince George's County News. The first was a deep dive into Maryland's folklore, followed by an actual news item about a family blaming the brutal decapitation of their puppy on the Goatman which they, they may or may not have just heard about via the county news. One month later, the Washington Post ran a national feature detailing the legend of the Goatman. Ultimately, the Goatman has become one of America's most persistent and well-known urban legends, with claimed sightings still occurring with regularity and cheesy fictionalizations still creeping out the old line state. I wonder if that was uh, 
where uh, Jim Brewer came up with his uh, for the Goat Boy on Saturday Night Live. Remember, he was like, <laughs> I, now that you mention it, I do remember the Goat Boy. He was awesome. That's funny. Massachusetts, the cursed of Giles Corey. The Salem witch trials were creepy enough to begin with but the story of giles Corey, who was slowly pressed to death under a series of progressively heavier rocks in an effort to extract a confession is particularly unsettling legend has it he uttered a curse against salem right before he dying breath for generations his apparition apparition was allegedly appeared in the cemetery before something terrible was about to happen including a 1914 fire that burned down a sizable proportion of the city there, there has also been a series of tragedies that have hit the Salem Sheriff's Office, starting with the 1696 heart attack that killed George Corwin four years after he presided over the trials. Can you imagine that? Getting pressed to death? Oh, it'd be awful. Under a, under a series of progressively heavier rocks? I would imagine you would just, you would probably suffocate before your bones would crush, I would think. I mean, I'm thinking they probably have his legs tied down. His arms tied back, and they're just putting like a large boulders on his chest, maybe flat on the top so they can fit another one. And they're just they're saying, "Hey, give us the confession, and we'll take these rocks off of you." Yeah, man, they used to do some brutal things. Like so to, to some convicts in the old west, they used to tie their arms to like two horses and their and their legs to another two horses, and then they just smack their butts, and the horses would. One gallop and it would just rip you and rip you in half. I think they drawn and quartered. Yeah, yeah drawn quartered. Oh yeah. my gosh! So here we got where we at Michigan. Michigan Hell's Bridge, the Nain Rouge and Dogmen. They've got nothing on the tale of Ilias Frisk, a deranged old preacher who, accordingly to blood curdling lore. Pied Pipered, a group of tethered children into the woods near what is now Algoma Township. He slaughtered them one by one, casting them into the Cider Creek before being caught by their parents and hanged, but not before saying he was possessed by demons. In its current form, Hell's Bridge is a creaky, narrow metal footbridge in the middle of the woods where those brave enough to cross it at night claim to hear the voices and screams of children and are sometimes greeted by a black figure with glowing eyes as they traverse it. There is no record of an Elias Frisk in the area, though there was a prominent Frisk family beginning in the 1910s. Still, despite the lack of hard facts, anyone who's visited the bridge will attest that there is something out there, and it usually makes its presence known as you're teetering on a shaky metal bridge in the moonlight. Wow. I mean, that's that's pretty convincing. I mean, yeah, there's no, there is no Elias Frisk, but a prominent Frisk family back in the 1910s. Yeah, I would say it's probably a good chance there was. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these urban legends are falling between like 1910 and 1914, there's been something going on, like turn of the century. Yeah, totally. So in Minnesota, they have the Hairy Man of Vergus Trail. Now, what's not to be creeped out about an eight-foot, musty-smelling, barefoot man with a reputation for being unnaturally aggressive? 
is a hell of a thing to consider encountering in the woods. Some reported sightings were just that. Sightings, however, reports like Kevin Zitzow made the hairy men more than an apparition, but something to fear. Zitzow returned from driving in the woods with dents all over his car hood and said the hairy man jumped on onto the road and began pounding on the hood. Now, nobody really knows. Sightings trace back to the 60s and had significant increase in the 70s and still happen from time to time. Now, some say it's a legend. Some say there was an old hermit living in the woods who, was, who wasn't too keen on rascally kids wandering his land. Others say the hairy man is real and point to a mysterious skull discovered in Virgus Trail area that is very human-like but not hominid. It was discovered by a private citizen who didn't turn it over, so no one knows if it's human, Bigfoot, animal, or a hoax. Ooh. That's good. I mean, I'm glad he didn't turn it over, because it would have ended up in Raiders of the Lost Ark and scene room yep. with everything else. Buried down in the back of a warehouse. Yep. That's pretty cool. So this next one's Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. Nice one. The three-legged lady of Nash Road. Whenever a strange person starts chasing your car as you drive down a dark, unfamiliar road, it's unsettling. When she bangs on your hood, it's even worse. But when she has three legs and one seems to be rotting, a limb she sewed on her body, that's the worst. But that's what generations of Mississippi of Mississippians have said about the stretch of Nash Road near Columbus, where the lady does her thing. From Robert Johnson selling his soul to the Yazoo Witch, many ghost stories in, Minis- in Mississippi persist. But the three-legged lady gets points for changing to suit what scares you. Some say the extra leg was removed from a dead lover and attached to her body. Some believe she's the ghost of a mother who got lost searching for her dismembered daughter after all she could find was her severed leg. Some say she wants to race you across a nearby bridge. Either way, turn off your headlights on a stretch of the road and don't be surprised if you're forced to confront this specter for yourself. No thanks, I think I'll pass. I've never seen a three-legged human at all. I don't think you're supposed to. Yeah, that seems like a, a pretty novel thing for me. Yeah, I mean, well, this next one doesn't sound too much better. Zombie Road, Missouri. The dark canopied trail running through Wildwood, Missouri, just outside St. Louis, has been a hotbed of creepy tales for ages, often revolving around shadowy human figures, following and frightening those along the trail. Originally built as an access road for the gravel quarries along the Merrimack River, the road fell into disuse and despair in 1970s and saw an increase in teenagers flocking to the area to party and to scare the crap out of each other. The origin of the stories, the trail's haunting varies widely. From the kind of plausible railway accidents executed Civil War spies to the more sensational, sadistic children's hospital. Several years ago, the pathway was paved so it might be used as a bike path but that hasn't done much to slow the legend the police are doing their best however dang dude i know right from missouri out to montana the hitchhiker of black horse lake usually when you see a hitchhiker on a particularly desolate stretch of highway which highway 87 certainly can be it gives you the willies 
on this particular stretch near Great Falls, it's compounded by the fact that the namesake's lake is seasonal and dry most seasons. Regardless, the end result of the body of a Native American man clad in jeans with jet black hair slamming into your windshield as you're driving is sheer terror. Legend has it, those who encounter the hitchhiker suddenly find his body bouncing off the front of their car. When they stop to help, there's nothing there and no damage to the windshield. The hitchhiker, meanwhile, repeats this cycle endlessly, trapped in his own personal hell as he repeats his moment of death which, with whichever driver happens to be cruising down the road at the wrong time. Folklorists have traced the whole vanishing hitchhiker phenomenon back to the 19th century. Though given the presence of denim reported by most who encounter the hitchhiker, we're going to guess he met his demise in the 60s, if he was real. Legends of wandering spirits of Native Americans are pretty prevalent in this part of the country too, so chances are the hitchhiker lore and the Native stuff just mated logically. I wonder how many people are actually like hit by cars out there and people are just like it was the hitchhiker of Black Horse Lake and just kept going. Yeah, just keep going. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's the such good advice because... Yeah, if you hit a hitchhiker, don't ever keep going. Yeah, yeah don't, don't. I mean, Especially if you're in Montana. Right. Mon- Montana's really desolate too, man. Just, yeah, just, just be careful. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're in Nebraska... You should be watching out for Seven Sisters Road. There's no shortage of creepy road where creepy things happen. But Nebraska's Seven Sisters Road is particular unsettling, with the legend telling of a young man who, following a dispute with his family, led each of his sisters out to seven different hills and hung them from a different tree. The precise origins of the legend are unclear. Sometimes it's the father rather than the brother, depending on who's telling the story. But it goes back long enough and is ingrained well enough in the local culture that it's taken into account when making highway construction plans. Jeez. That is crazy. (laughs) It is crazy. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. The big boy. In Nevada, there is a place called Area 51. Oh, cool. I can't wait to hear about this place. Area 51 lore has been satirized, remixed, and riffed on so much in popular culture, sometimes it's hard to remember how creepy this whole deal was or is in the first place. But secret government cover-ups, dead aliens, and playing God in the middle of the desolate Nevada desert is creepier than probing Randy Quaid. It's been said that everything from time travel, genetic experiments, and alien autopsies are all commonplace at Area 51. Frankly, no one outside of high government knows what goes on in there. First off, Area 51 is real. It's a highly classified military base in the southern portion of Nevada. Its purpose is publicly unknown. But in early 1950s, in the infant stages of the Cold War, President Eisenhower approved plans to build the U-2 stealth plane and created Area 51 to house the development labs and test field. When reports of admittedly spacecraft-looking plane floated through the public media, theories spread. 
and the conjecture around Roswell's alien crash site only fanned the flames of speculation. From there, it's been the epicenter for all U.S. government suspicion. Amen to that. The Cursed Isles of Shoals in New Hampshire. The charming archipelago of Isles of Shoals of New Hampshire Eastern Shore is the perfect destination for a seaside picnic. Or, you know, a series of brutal murders. <laughs> two, <laughs> two young women were horrifically butchered via the particularly creepy maniac with an axe method in the late 1870s. And apparently you can still hear them screaming, often late at night, which is just objectively unsettling. This specific island, Smutty Nose, is said to be haunted by these ghosts, the axe murderer himself, pirates, and the gang of other poltergeists. And come on, have you ever seen an abandoned old lighthouse in the fog? The islands have a history longer than the country they are in. Blackbeard himself was rumored to use the islands as a honeymoon destination in gold depository in the early 18th century. And naturally, he killed some people there along the way. By the time Lewis Wagner murdered the men living on Smutty Nose, there were already ghost stories about haunting chain of islands with history of pirates and, of course, axe murders come creepy tales and again the abandoned lighthouses don't help mm, isles of shoals yeah i mean maybe people like they get possessed by all these entities there and then they're just like you know kill whoever you're with instead of love the one you're with it's kill the one you're with there's definitely some stuff going on up there in new hampshire there's little islands off the off the coast and there's definitely stories about haunted islands we'll check it out Next one's from New Jersey, and it's The Watcher. Let's be real. The average New Jersey Devils fanboy is scarier than the obvious legend of the Jersey Devil. And The Watcher, a legend that creeped its way into viral fame in 2015, is like a David Fincher movie breathed into horrifying life. If you don't know the details... In the summer of 2015, a young family moved into a million-dollar house in Westfield, New Jersey. Soon after, they started getting letters signed by someone only IDing themselves as the watcher, claiming it was his duty to watch over the house, while also spouting crazy lines like, Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? And who has the bedrooms facing the street? Is this a prank based off a weirdly accepted local legend? A media hoax? A way to drive down real estate prices? It's impossible to know, but it feels very weird. And somebody is still sending letters to the inhabitants of the house. The debate and skepticism still burn in the creepiest corners of the internet. And while it's a fairly new legend... It's probably one of the scariest entries on this list, no matter what you believe. That'd be weird. Because, you know, I bet there's like a bunch of teenagers that probably still send letters to the house, probably. That's kind of cool. I mean, it would not be cool to live there, though. Oh, I'm not living there. Now, if you've been to New Mexico and you spent some time with the locals, you've probably heard of the Chupacabra. Simply put, it's a rabid beast that may or not be the size of a bear, but definitely has spikes on its backs and glowing eyes. And it can fly if it wants, but it will definitely suck the blood out of your pets and family. And a ton of people think it's real, which is almost scarier. 
Anyone who grew up in the Southwest knows of the legend of the Chupacabra. Down there, it's as big as Bigfoot, even if people can't agree on what it actually looks like. The first sighting happened in 1995 in Puerto Rico. And eyewitness accounts of the goat sucker had been steady trope across Central America, reaching heat in Mexico and Southwest over the past two decades. New Mexico, in particular, has been the source of some notable chupacabra sightings as recently as last summer. And a treasure hunter claimed he found a genuine chupacabra skull in Las Vegas. I always pictured the chupacabra being a little bit smaller in statue. Like, you get your Bigfoots out there, large stature. I think that the chupacabra is a little bit smaller. Yeah, I'd like it, I think I like the chupacabra almost like, almost like kind of like a... Like a wolf size like i don't know but yeah but kind of moving more like like a like a, probably having hooves i like it so this next one which i love yeah we talk about in past uh podcasts and and just privately the montauk project in new york a series of alleged government experiments conducted in Montauk, Long Island in early 1980s reportedly served as one of the Duffer brothers' main inspiration for Stranger Things. The original working title of Stranger Things was actually Montauk. So, we're talking about psychological warfare, experimenting on children, opening portals to other dimensions, and various other nefarious government-funded creepiness. While there are rumors circulating around shady government activity on the southeastern tip of Long Island for nearly a decade prior, the legend wasn't fully baked until the early 1990s, when Peter B. Nichols, a parapsychologist and electrical engineer helped pen the Montauk Project Experiments in Time, which detailed a slew of salacious, repressed memories from his days working in Montauk. Corroborated by other colleagues, the book detailed time warps to Mars, genetic experiments, and Eleven-esque psychic child spies the montauk project itself is said to be a piece of a larger psychological war spirit warfare conspiracy called the philadelphia experiment which naturally inspired its own film too which is one of steve's favorite as so it's one of well i mean we've done a podcast on the philadelphia experiment if well. you haven't heard it you should go back and listen to it. Uh, I don't know that we say that a lot, but it's one of my favorites of all time. Yeah, me and Steve are going to try and get access and some clearance at some point to go down to uh, where the where the ship is in the in the Philadelphia docks and see if we can't like do a small show or have a small get together and uh, just see if we can have some fun. Maybe take some tours of it. And we drove by some ships while we, we were just in Philly like two months yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we saw where, they, where they'd be located. Now we just have to uh, get the clearance. So, uh, have you ever heard of the Bunny Man Bridge in Virginia? No. Well, the legend is fun to repeat at campfires, but the real sightings beyond the legend are some to give you nightmares. In 1970, there were numerous police reports of people who had been threatened by a man holding an axe, wearing a white suit with bunny ears. A few individuals reported the man in the suit actually threw an axe at them for trespassing. To this day, there have been many sightings of dead rabbits appearing in the woods surrounding Fairfax Bridge, now known as the Bunny Man Bridge, as well as a white figure appearing late at night underneath the bridge. 
Legends say that in 1904, a group of convicts were piled onto a bus to be transported from an asylum in Clifton, Virginia, to a nearby prison. En route, one of the buses crashed. The convicts managed to escape, and the police were able to round up all of but one of the convicts. As their search went on, they began to find skinned, half-eaten bunnies in the woods and hanging from the overpass of Fairfax Bridge, now known as the Bunny Man Bridge. A year later, on Halloween night, several teens went to hang out under the bridge. Come morning, they were all found dead. It is said that if you hang out under the bridge on Halloween night, you'll meet the same fate as the rabbits and the teenagers. Oh, man. I'm not going to do that. No, you're, you'd be better taking us to Oklahoma, Steve. What do you What do you think is more scary, the uh, the st- the knife stabbing from like the movie Psycho, or these axes that that keep coming up in the folklore? Well, they both have their own fear factor. Now, the the knife in the shower, you're so vulnerable because you're naked. I mean, yeah. your biggest defense is basically like putting your hands up. Uh, you're basically done for. Now, not to say that being chased with an axe and just the anticipation at any second you could throw it and you're just going to feel that axe hit you in the middle of your back. Oh. I mean. Plus, like the percussion would be so much more with the axe hitting your body. Although that knife, I mean, it was just it feels like it would just stab right through you in there fist would end up pounding like on your chest uh, it's like saying would you rather shoot yourself or hang yourself that's true yeah you i know? really don't want either one of them <laughs> exactly so in oklahoma they've got the skirvin hotel because the place is basically oklahoma's equivalent to the hotel from the shining a luxury hotel whose permanent residents include eternally crying babies a ghost that likes to grope people in the shower spirits that slam doors and the ghost of the original owner's mistress, who allegedly died along with his illegitimate child, and who still walks the halls with a stroller. It's so prevalent that even the toughest of NBA players who stay in the posh hotel when in Oklahoma often find themselves seeking alternate accommodation, and that's before the bed bugs start biting. The place was built in 1911, and shortly thereafter, original owner Fred Schuberl was shot to death, but not before allegedly impregnating a maid who perished on the 10th floor. It's been all downhill since then. Even a renovation in the early 90s didn't scrub the supernatural from the most haunted hotel in Oklahoma. Oh, if anything, it started up even worse. Cause oh, yeah, you can't do that. No, not at all. Uh what a what a great movie, The Shining, and they 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 did a, a remake of it for uh, TV back in the late '90s, and they did a great job on it. Uh, really like that story. My wife hates it. It's one of her scariest things. She hates that scene with Jack Nicholson's head sticking through the door, and he's just like, "Here's Johnny." Uh, I I saw The Shining on my way to Penn State as a child, and I was way too young to be seeing a movie that scary. It is a scary movie. Yeah. Uh, Oregon, the bandage man of Cannon Beach, 
Far from the rooted in history scares of Portland's Shanghai tunnels, the bandage man haunts a lonely patch of decommissioned highway near the idyllic coast town of Cannon Beach. Like many slightly pervy ghosts, he's likely to mess with randy teenagers making out in their cars, though more sinister legends have him eating dogs, wandering the wine-swept roadside, and even jumping in the back of pickups and sedans, filling the car with the scent of rotting flesh. The bandage man, most popularly a logger hacked up at the nearby mill, made his earliest documented appearance in the 50s. He was likely a spooked story told about told around beach bonfires by teens weaned on monster movies. Still, after hearing the tale late at night, then retiring to the confines of a secluded road for a little third base action, it's a story that carries enough creepy weight to seriously kill the mood, which is why it's persisted for decades. Ooh, the bandage man. That's like uh, the mummy. Yeah. This next one, I have to say, living in Pennsylvania, I haven't really heard, but uh, it's the, interesting. The story of old Charlie No-Face. Y- yeah. Yeah, I live in Pennsylvania. I've never heard this one. According to legend, after a tragic childhood accident, Charlie No-Face, a.k.a. the glowing green man, lost his face and turned radioactive literally glowing in a toxic green as he stalks western Pennsylvania highways at night. His main haunt is Piney Fork Tunnel, an abandoned freight tunnel in Hillsville. But if you seek him out, keep your foot on the accelerator. If he even manages to touch your car, it might stall in the middle of the night. Then you'll be hanging out with old Charlie No-Face for the rest of your probably short life. Ray Robinson was a real man. As a child in 1919, he was severely electrocuted. Is that funny to you, Steve? (laughs) It was funny the way they said Ray Robinson is a real man. We know Ray Robinson. It's like a a rap song. Ray Robinson was a real man. (laughs) A real man. So he was electrocuted by a trolley wire while peeing into a bird's nest, which practically melted and disfigured his entire face. As an adult, Robinson walked Western Pennsylvania highways, Route 351 to be exact, but only at night, as his shocking visage garnered unwanted attention. His glowing appearance is likely due to the petroleum jelly he needed to coat his damaged skin. Those who know him claim he was an incredibly sweet, though profoundly isolated. And no, he has nothing to do with Pennsylvania's other green man. You know. Yes, oh, we know. So, Mercy Brown, Rhode Island. Rhode Island's home to many a haunted house, including the one that inspired The Conjuring. Ugh. But one legend you can experience without trespassing is the tale of Mercy Brown. It seemed that back in the day, Rhode Island was in the midst of a vampire panic, and its most famous victim was a 19-year-old Mercy Brown. And her mother and sister died. Mercy succumbed to tuberculosis as well. Due to the panic, villagers presumed something supernatural was afoot. When they exhumed Mercy... Her body was remarkably well-preserved, so they removed her heart and liver, burned them down to ashes, and fed them to her sick brother. He died two months later. (laughs) No wonder. They say the spirit of mercy, though, still haunts the cemetery of Exeter, where her gravesite remains a place where morbid tourists flock and where chill 
and where a chill hangs perpetually in the air. Historical fact, Mercy Brown died on January 17, 1892, and her cremated heart was forced to her brother. Her story is most famous of many similarly gruesome tales that stroke the fires of Rhode Island's haunted landscape. Yeah, man. Her brother died because he had to eat a heart that was burned. Yeah. And liver. They exhumed her heart and liver and burned them. That is some... That's some sadistic stuff. That's some paranoid culture. (laughs) That's a paranoid society right there. Agreed. South Carolina's got bow hogs. Boo hags. Boo hags basically (laughs) make traditional vampires seem like Robert Pattinson vampires. They're skinless beings that creep into people's homes in the low country, climb on their chest for a ride, and gain vitality by sucking out your breath. Looks like my cat. Definitely. They also have a very nasty habit of tearing off a victim's skin and wearing it to keep themselves warm, though they'll usually just leave you short of breath and tired. Boo hags are a fixture of Gula and Geechee culture, prevalent in coastal low country areas populated by African-American descendants of slavery. The creatures are among the most horrifying and unsettling among the rich folkloric history, yet seem tame when compared to the true atrocities of the region that birthed them. Wow. Well, they have walking Sam in South Dakota. A wave of suicides, 103 attempts as of December 2014. On the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota is being attributed to the presence of a walking Sam figure. Teenagers claim a slender shadow-like spirit dubbed Walking Sam appears before them and commands them to kill themselves. The first wave occurred in 2013 when five members of the Ogala Sioux Tribe killed themselves and continued to spiral until the Ogala Sioux Tribe Vice President Thomas Poorbear discovered photos on Facebook in 2015 depicting nooses hanging from trees revealing plans behind a teenage group's suicide. The specter archetype that Walking Sam is based on has roots starting in the good old-fashioned boogeyman and working all the way down to the slender man told to folk, told as folklore as far as 2008. The idea of shadow people is also pretty old-school urban legend going back further in history. However, the character of Walking Sam himself has existed along the Lakota and Dakota Native American tribes for some time now, with a record of him being described in Peter Matheson's In the Spirit of Crazy Horse back in 1980. Sometimes known as Stovepipe Hat Bigfoot or Takuhuhi, the character has been spotted by South Dakota Sioux and Little Eagle tribes as far back as 1974. I would not want to see him. No, I'm going to stay clear. Not if he looks like a Slenderman. <laughs> exactly. Ugh. In Tennessee, they've got The Bell Witch. Essentially, a real-life horror movie, the hauntings of one of Tennessee's families by some sort of spirit believed to be a witch ultimately attracted the attention and subsequent visit by soon-to-be President Andrew Jackson. And while Jackson, who allegedly was was spoken to by the witch got the heck out of Dodge, a cave near the site believed to be a portal for the witch remains a major tourist attraction in Adams, Tennessee today. Probably hell, 
But more factually, the haunting of the Bell family began in 1817 after the father, John Bell, witnessed some sort of rabbit-headed dog in his field and tried to shoot it. From that night on, the family experienced tappings on the doors and windows, sheets slowly being pulled off beds, and eventually the voice of a woman named Kate who was dead set on destroying the family. After years of torment, John Bell died in 1820, after which the family found a small vial of liquid near his deathbed. Kate, the Bell witch, proudly proclaimed she gave John the poison that finished him off. Wow. I'd just be like, if I was hearing all that stuff, I'd be like, we're out of here. Yeah, I don't think we'd stick around there too long. No, I'd be like, I'm foreclosing on this. I'm out of here. The sheet's getting pulled off. Yeah. The black-eyed children of Texas. Scary movies constantly have people fearing old country back roads, abandoned homes, and kids popping out of cornfields. But the black-eyed children are known to be seen wandering around totally normal, non-threatening locals. Locales like Walmart, parking lots, and sonic drive-ins. And worse, they're rumored to put their victims in a tight situation by starting out asking for something totally unsuspecting, like a ride home or some petty cash. The first documented case of the black-eyed children came in 1996 from reporter Brian Bethel, who had pulled his car into the parking lot of an Albion movie theater to use the bright marquee light to write a check. While writing out the check, two young kids, who Bethel claims were between 9 and 12, approached the car, knocked on the window, and asked for a ride home to grab cash to come back for the movie. The children were totally unnerved, totally unnerved Bethel. He claimed that they didn't have a gun before making eye contact and revealing coal black eyes that Bethel later described as sort of eyes one sees on aliens and bargain basement vampires on late night television. Sort of like the grays, but I guess what they're trying to describe. Right, the black. I mean, I can just picture it as like totally black out. Right. That's creepy. It is. Utah. Escalante. The Escalante Petrified Forest Curse. Utah's legend is particularly troubling for tourists, as they might be taking the horror home with them, even if they escape the forest. With shocking regularity, visitors who have stolen chunks of petrified wood from Escalante Petrified Forest State Park will mail back their lifted souvenirs. All, all their letters detail series of unfortunate events, from broken collarbones, arms, and ribs, to mysterious illnesses, horrific accidents, and financial ruin. The one thing they have in common, they all occurred after the victim illegally stole a piece of the forest. Many people have, and still do, mail back cursed pieces of the petrified wood, and the park even displays the letters and samples openly as an attraction. Apparently, they've been, there have been cases of stolen wood turning to bad luck since the 1930s, though it's unclear the actual root of the curse. Maybe it's the burden of moral ambiguity affecting other areas of life. Maybe it's just coincidence. Either way, it's not worth risking your collarbone. It's just like Hawaii. Yeah, man. Don't take stuff from... I know. What are you doing? What do you need? Proof? Right. The Hayden family curse in Vermont. 
You know a curse is serious when it takes down an entire lineage and still manages to bother people after everyone else is dead. William Hayden was a wealthy landowner in Albany, Vermont in the early 1800s, but he never repaid his even wealthier mother-in-law for loaning him some major funds over the years. After much complaining, she became mysteriously ill, accused William of poisoning her, and with her dying breath said, The Hayden name shall die in the third generation, and the last to bear the name shall die in poverty. The Hayden family barely made it another hundred years after being plagued with financial catastrophes and illnesses. Phantom music, mysterious lights, and other assorted paranormal activity is said to haunt their estate in Albany, along with the ghost of the vengeful mother-in-law, she is really mad at this guy. Now, in some versions, William Hayden was a Gatsby-esque party boy who quite knowingly blew all his mother-in-law's funds on lavish parties and ornate decorations for his home, building his family locale fame and infamy, which probably just fueled the rumor mill. And when all the Haydens died, a wealthy Canadian family moved in their mansion and allegedly used the home for bootlegging and smuggling Chinese immigrants for slave labor. So yeah, even if the curse isn't real, the house itself still has some dark history. I bet that guy killed the mother-in-law. Yeah. She loaned him the money, and then he poisoned her. Yeah, I would have to say. I would. I, I'm reading between the lines there, but that's what it seems like to me. And then on her on her deathbed, she said, the Hayden name shall die in the third generation. Yeah. I uh, could see that happening. I think we're down here to uh, Washington. Washington. The 13 Steps to Hell. Basically, the opposite of the Zeppelin song the Maltby Cemetery itself, the subject of rumors associating it with Satanism, is rumored to include a subterranean tomb for a really creepy rich family that could be assessed by 13 steps that led to their final resting place. Or the final resting place of every damn soul in history. As legend has it, that descending the entire staircase led you to a glimpse of hell itself. The cemetery's been around since 1901, though the crypt itself's date has been lost to time, as have the stairs themselves, which have been bulldozed over and covered in concrete. That hasn't stopped curious paranormal masochists from trespassing on the secluded private property, allegedly showing up at the cemetery at night eager to unearth it via nocturnal excavation missions and being greeted by the cemetery's other apparitions. Jeez. People are crazy. Yeah, I can't imagine. That would be weird, though, if there was like a a little like subterranean tomb. That would be. That you could go down into. I bet that would get vandalized a lot. Yeah. Now, here's one that we're quite familiar with that we've done a podcast on the pack and uh, on in the past, and most recently uh, it came up again in our episode of Injured Cold. West Virginia's The Mothman. The Mothman was introduced in West Virginia in 1966 with its best newspaper headline ever Couple Sees Man Sized Bird, Creature, Something. From there, residents all over West Virginia reported seeing the winged human like red eyed creature around the state. Unsure if it was a demon, alien, or genetic experiment gone wrong, even as recently as 2016, Mothman sightings have made the news. Yes, like the actual news. 
The myth dates back to the initial newspaper piece, but the legend has been long propagated in pop culture, inspiring a horror novel and the subsequent Richard Gere film adaptation. In Point Pleasant, where the original incident was recorded, there's a Mothman Museum, a Mothman Festival, and a sizable statue. The Mothman has become big business, and if nothing else, he clearly paved the way for for the tabloids. That sounds that sounds incredible, especially the part of the uh, Mothman Festival, which uh, we're going to go down to. Yes, in September of this uh, of 2020, and. Uh, we were able to uh, talk to a, uh, a fan this past this past week about uh, coming down to the festival. He said he's been going down for the past couple of years, and a group of people have been getting together and uh, you know having a real good time over the over the festival. Um, we're, we're Steve and I are, are hopefully going to be um, some speakers at that festival. Um, that hasn't really been ironed out yet, but we're we're hoping for that and. Uh, so yeah, if anybody's going to be going down to the Mothman Festival, definitely reach out to us, uh, you know, via um, social media, and uh, we'll all team up and, and have a good time. Definitely be in attendance. I'd love to speak there with you, folks. Um, but even if it doesn't work, we'll still be there celebrating the Mothman Festival with the rest of them. Exactly, it'll be a good time. So out in Wisconsin, the Rhinelander Hodag. The Hodag is a small creature that is simultaneously a frightening demon and comically covered by spikes. It's often portrayed as being dog-sized, but early reports said it could grow to six feet long. A 1928 legend describes the Hodag as having the head of a frog, saber-toothed tiger-like fangs, thick legs, and large claws. The back of the plated... a, a back like the plated dinosaur and a long tail with spears on the end. Despite its hellspawn swagger, it was never that much of a threat to humans outside of its powerful skunk perfume stench. The green devil was discovered in 1893 by developer Eugene Shepard and almost instantly became a fixture of the North Wisconsin folklore. Three years later, Shepard claimed he caught another and put it on display in 1896, Oneida County Fair. He had knocked it out with chloroform, so of course it was sleeping. But he had wires hooked up to the fake animal to make it move occasionally. Word spread fast, and the Smithsonian sent a reporter to look into the hodag. Shepard quickly admitted it was a fraud. Rhinelander never let go, though. It's the high school mascot, and there are multiple statues of this beast around town. That's awesome that it's the high school mascot. The Hodag. Yeah, we're the Hodags. Well, last and certainly not least, the state of Wyoming and the Platte of Rivership of Death. There are endless creepy tales in the wilds of Wyoming, among them the headless woman who haunts the lodge of Old Faithful. But the creepiest is also the most overlooked, a ghost ship that materialized outside spectral fog on the Plate River. The cursed crew huddles on the deck of the old sailboat, surround a body. If the onlooker persists in looking, the corpse is revealed to be that of a still-living loved one who will then die soon afterward. Ugh. The ship was first reportedly spotted in 1892 by a trapper named Leon Weber, whose girlfriend died shortly after he envisioned her 
on the cursed deck. Legend has it that the last documented sighting claiming the life of a lumberjack's friend back in 1903. There have been no official sightings since, though you could forgive people for getting the hell away from the river as soon as the fog rolls in. Jeez, man, the ship of death. Yeah, man. I've heard of the ship of fools, but not the ship of death. You're all over it tonight, folks. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so that's the complete list. All 50 states and the the urban legends by, by, I guess, by vote of or most tale told in that state, uh, you know, has won the uh, the legend for that state. So, uh, yeah, we covered them in their entirety, and uh, they're a lot of fun. That urban legend you were talking to me about earlier where there's a hill here, and I remember it it wasn't far away, right? No, like probably within, you know, five to six mile radius of here. And you'd pull your car up. Just, and you'd be, I guess you would put it like in neutral, and then... You would roll. You'd roll up the hill and come up over the other side of the hill. It was like you were going downhill, but up the hill. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And man. there was also one that people around here used to talk to. I'm sorry if everyone else can't relate to this, but uh, that there was this house that you would drive by. It was out near one of uh, the high schools in the area, the Votechnical High School, I think. And that if you drove by this lady's house and like honked your horn like she was a witch she'd come running out to your car again i have friends that have claimed to have done it or that they know people that have done it i don't know where this house is i've never done it so if anybody that we went to high school with is listening to this you remember that and that's still a thing reach out to us because i'll go honk yeah definitely we'll do it now Oh what, yeah! What was the one where you would spin around in the mirror and say like, "Oh, Bloody, Bloody Mary, Bloody yeah. Mary, Bloody Mary"? You go in the bathroom and then you'd say, "In the name. total dark." Yeah. Did you ever do it? Uh, I I think so, uh, but uh, you know, it was always something that would be really scary. Like if I went in there, I'd be like, "Yeah, I did it," or I'd like say it twice, but I was a little too scared to push it the third time. Yeah, I remember being in a dark bathroom as a youngster, like spinning around in circles and. Man, that was a scary time in my life because I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. So if if you're out there and you feel like you got enough guts to do it, do it. Give it a try. Yeah, I mean, if you want to tempt the paranormal, I mean, we want to talk to you after you do it. Of course we do, yeah. I mean, so, well... That's a wrap for tonight. I had fun. Urban legends are always a good time, and uh, you can always have fun with them. But uh, I had fun with you. Yeah, it was a good time tonight, Foltz. Well, until next time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.